This is Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. In this series, we're taking you inside the UN's era-defining climate report via the hearts and minds of the scientists from all around the world who wrote it. So this is our last episode, Mike. You beat me to it, Joelle, but you don't need to worry because we still have places to go and people to meet. Hello, I'm Ada Jong-Nyang from Dakar, Senegal, at the east coast of the Atlantic. I like coming at the seaside to observe the sea, to relax and to do sports such as swimming and aqua gym. I think you can hear the coach and the people doing aqua gym here. Dr. Ada Dionyan is a meteorologist from Senegal in West Africa, and she does something called aqua gym in the water at the seaside in Dakar. Ada worked on the same chapter as Kim Cobb and Ed Hawkins, who we spoke to in the first episode. She's also a lead author in the final part of the IPCC's assessment, which brings together highlights from all volumes, which is known as the Synthesis Report. That is a coffee shop of the aqua bike. You can hear nice music. That is Afro-Cubian music playing presently. What's it like there this morning? It's very hot. October is uh, the hottest month because it is the end of the rainy season. We still have humidity, but not enough to <laughs> to provide rain. Yeah, it's 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 very hot, and people are complaining. But it's it's bright, it's nice, and you have the sea. So so she go was going to down to the sea early mornings, two or three times a week to unwind, but. Even when she's there, she keeps working, in a way. But there also, when I go to the sea, I try to talk to other people. I see there that maybe we need to do something because we have a lot of plastic in the sea, a lot of waste. It's hard to turn off your environmental awareness. Yeah, there's a lot to do. You're listening to Fear and Wonder, brought to you by The Conversation. I'm Dr Joelle Gerges. I'm a climate scientist at the Australian National University and I'm also a lead author on the UN's Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. And I'm Michael Green. I'm a journalist and a friend of Joelle's. And in this podcast, we've been exploring the life of these hugely influential IPCC reports and the kind of thinking and feeling that goes into them. When you start thinking about the state of the world, you realise that there really is a lot to do, as Ada just said. I really could hear this big sigh when she's like, plastic as well. (laughs) Absolutely. And to be honest, I can really relate to that feeling of when you're out there in nature and sometimes you just keep seeing things like coastal erosion or plastic, it's hard to switch it off. We're spending this episode behind the scenes with Ada over the last six months as she works on the final part of the IPCC's assessment, the Synthesis Report. We're looking at this final part through the lens of human health, especially in Africa. So after all the IPCC reports we've released, there's this final volume which aims to summarise the most important findings of the entire assessment cycle. So working groups one, two and three, as well as three special reports. So the key findings from these six volumes is then distilled into the final synthesis report, which was released in March 2023. There's a line in the report that really jumps out at me, and it says, the choices and actions implemented this decade will have impacts now and for thousands of years. And for me, this is what it all really boils down to. Basically, the people alive today will determine the future course of humanity, which is a huge thing to really get your head around. So in this last episode, I think it's really important to keep this sense of urgency in our mind. 
And it's also really important to remember that one of the other key findings of the IPCC's synthesis report is that if we act now, we can still secure a livable future. So as we follow Ada around, we're going to be asking how all this science feeds into the decisions made by governments around the world. Dakar is on a peninsula that's the westernmost point on the continent. Dakar is nearly surrounded by sea (laughs) and is subject to coastal erosion already. Mm. Ada explained to me that its climate is milder than the rest of the country. So to the north is the Sahel, which is a band across the whole continent that's basically the southern edge of the Sahara, and it's hot and semi-arid. Dakar has at least one-fifth of the Senegal population, particularly during the dry season, because Senegal has a rainy season of three to five months, depending on the area where you are. And this is in the monsoon system. Ada did her PhD on the West African monsoon. It means that you have a rainfall in a short period, and after it's a dry period, and during the dry period, uh, many people come from the countryside also to find job opportunity in, in Dakar. And so what's happening with the draft for the synthesis report? How, what, what more do you need to do? We need also to, to finalise IPCC final government draft of the synthesis report by the end of the week. Oh. And I'm working also with the Senegal delegation to the COP and some work also in my office. On November the 6th, the world's biggest climate conference kicks off in Egypt. It is hosted by an African nation, which means that Africa's priorities for the UN climate conference, well, they should be front and centre. So that week was also the week before a really big event, the Conference of the Parties who signed the United Nations Framework Convention on Climate Change, the UNFCCC, and it's often abbreviated to COP. So it's the annual meeting of the governments of the world to negotiate what they're going to do about climate change. So as well as trying to finish the draft of the synthesis report, Ada was preparing to go to Egypt as part of the Senegal delegation and also to speak at some events for the IPCC there. It's very important to have this COP in Africa and I see already that has provided attention to climate change at national level. And the fact that the COP is happening in Africa, which is a continent which is highly vulnerable to climate change, we hope that that will help to get support for for adaptation. Personally, I hope also to see loss and damage included in the formal negotiations. We've seen already the impact of climate change and we know that we have irreversible changes. One of the key findings from the synthesis report is that up to 3.6% billion people live in areas that are highly vulnerable to climate change. That's pretty much close to half the world's population. So climate and weather extremes are increasingly driving the displacement of millions of people and are causing acute food and water insecurity. So it's, I mean, already happening on on an enormous scale. Yeah, that's right. Many parts of Africa are already experiencing the most severe impacts of climate change. And the report also shows that during the 2010s, Floods, droughts and storms killed 15 times more people in highly vulnerable regions compared to places that are less exposed to climate risk. People are already suffering from climate change. You know, in Senegal, there is a high share of population for whom livelihoods depend on natural resources which are impacted by climate change. And we know that for any additional warming, it's translated to increased risk. So I'm worried about the future generation, worried about my kids 
worried also about development in Senegal in this context. For example, if I take energy, it's a country that hasn't met yet universal access to energy for everyone. And globally also, I don't know yet how the future will, will unfold. I think it depends also of what's going to happen next week. So I'm worried, yeah. Well, what are you expecting it to be like to be there? Yeah, I have been in COP in the past and I know that there is a big event and you need to, to organize your schedule to, to know where to go exactly. Otherwise, you lose time navigating in different areas. These are notoriously enormous and swarming events with tens of thousands of people trying to find their way around the conference centres. So I've never been to a COP myself. I've never really had the funding or the opportunity to attend. I actually did want to go to COP27 in 2022 as it was held in Egypt where my family is from, but I couldn't get away at the time. But my parents actually went to Sharm el-Sheikh on their honeymoon in 1964. Uh, So for local Egyptians, it's a favourite holiday destination on the Red Sea, which is really famous for its beautiful beaches and coral reefs and and just generally a bit of a, a resort vibe. What is the most important job that has to get done in Egypt? In Egypt, we need to reaffirm our commitment to deliver. It's about implementation. This is the COP to demonstrate accountability on finance for climate adaptation, on finance for for uh, loss and damage. There's a huge amount going on at these negotiations, but there is a link to the IPCC, right, Joelle? Yeah, the IPCC provides the underlying science. So it's the evidence base that underpins these negotiations. So whether or not the governments then agree to enact the policies that adequately respond to the science is actually another matter. But these negotiations are what our work feeds directly into. So there's been one every year for nearly three decades, and that's what the number refers to when you hear phrases like COP27 or this year's COP28. And these meetings are particularly important for IPCC scientists when our reports have just come out, as we have a clearer idea of the urgency and what needs to be done by our political leaders. As we heard from Ada and also in that news clip a little earlier, there was a focus at this event on something called loss and damage. Mm, That's right. So loss and damage is basically the harm done by climate change. And it can include things that we can calculate the costs of. So things like rebuilding a bridge that's swept away in a flood or agricultural losses from a severe drought or things that we can't quantify in monetary terms. So a loss of community or a culture that's displaced by rising seas. And this concept of loss and damage really matters because we are already experiencing widespread impacts. And these impacts are predicted to get worse with every additional increment of global warming. And the continent of Africa as a whole, a region that has contributed the least to climate change, is the most vulnerable to its impacts. So in the context of these global meetings, when people talk about loss and damage, They're talking about the request from developing countries for compensation for these impacts, primarily caused by historical emissions generated by wealthy countries from the burning of fossil fuels. So it's kind of like a climate reparations. Mm, Yeah, you can think of it like that. It took Ada two days to make it to Sharm el-Sheikh via Morocco. And then I called her while she was there. Hello. Hi, Ada, how are you? It's a bit noisy. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. I'm sitting in the Senegal pavilion. 
So what, what's actually in a, the Senegal pavilion? Like, what is it a, a stand? Yeah, it's a big stand this, this year. Really, we have a big stand and we have a, a, a private room for the minister. He's uh, meeting a lot of people right now. <laughs> and I saw him signing a memorandum of understanding or something like that uh-huh. at the parties. Yeah, it's very busy, actually. <laughs> yeah. When we spoke last week, you said that you have to know your schedule, otherwise you get lost at a big meeting like this. Have you been lost at all, or is it, is it, is it been okay to get around yeah, this one? Yesterday, actually, I was lost because I was trying to attend the, the IPCC working group meeting. But as I sent an email saying that it would be on P29, and on the wall, there was no P29. So I was looking around for, say, more than uh, nearly 30 minutes, actually. Uh, Ada said it seemed to her that climate science and the IPCC was more prominent this time actually, around. IPCC, IPCC is invited to many official panels and many discussions are referring to, to IPCC. It was not the case in the previous years. Demonstrators have called on wealthy nations to pay fair compensation for the global impacts of the climate crisis while protesting outside the COP27 climate conference in Sharm el-Sheikh on Friday. It was one of several small protests which took place around the conference after demonstrations had been slightly muted at the summit so far. Do you have a a sense of what's happening or what, what you would like to happen? I think that the fact that loss and damage is in the official agenda is already a good sign that the wealth nations perhaps would do something in funding, in providing more funding to build resilience. But I don't know yet in what way, if it is only on adaptation or if they will really fund loss and damage. You're listening to Fear and Wonder. We'll be back after a short break. Hi, I'm Misha Ketchell, editor of The Conversation. We work with academic experts to make their work accessible so we can all be better informed. Everything we do is free to read and free to republish. Our only agenda is informing you, but we need your support. Every donation helps ensure quality information is available to everyone. Become a donor today. Go to donate.theconversation.com or follow the link in the show notes. And, okay, we're back with Fear and Wonder. If you've been enjoying the show, please rate it and review it and share it with anyone you think would enjoy it too. So in our final episode today, we've been tagging along with Senegalese meteorologist Ada Diong yang for the final months of her work on the synthesis report, the last part of the IPCC's Mammoth 6th assessment. We were just with her at the climate negotiations in Egypt, but we're going to leave her there for a moment and head a little north from Senegal to Mauritania. So my name is uh, Gela Josise. I am originally from Mauritania, South Mauritania. Gelagio is a professor of sanitary engineering and environmental epidemiology at the Swiss Tropical and Public Health Institute. And as well as contributing to the IPCC's synthesis report, he was also a coordinating lead author for the chapter on health and climate change prepared by Working Group 2 on impacts and adaptation. 
I grew up in the South Mauritania, the border with Senegal, a region called Gidimaka, and a city called Selibabi. And when we were in Selibabi young, it was still a region that is wetter on the country and having some trees, some forests, and we can hear the cries of hyenas. And there's a kind of wildlife existing around. We grow into that. So we are happy that the rainy season comes. We are jumping into rivers, swimming and hunting as, uh, as kids. If you went back to that city now where you grew up, what, what's it like? Now the, the environment of the city is no more green. The city has expanded a lot and some of the closest forests are now disappeared or occupied. And now you don't have the feeling that you are in a, in a, a wet region. You can see the impact of desertification, urbanization, yes, uh, the drought uh, impacts on the environment of that region. I see a, a, a very important change from how the environment was when I was young. He studied abroad, first civil engineering in Algeria, then sanitary engineering in Switzerland. And then he got a job back in Mauritania. So I came back to my country as the first sanitary engineer. And they brought me to the Minister of Health. I was an advisor for the Director of Public Health. He was happy to have finally one person trained on, on hygiene and sanitation. I was involved in programs against malaria, against guinea worm, against the cholera, against diarrhea. And I was the one who is be at the heart of intervention when it comes to preventing diseases. And from there, my, my, my passion for public health matters, environmental health matters, grew. So there are many ways that climate change affects human health. Earlier, I mentioned food and water insecurity and death caused by floods and droughts and storms, but there's also the increased risk of death caused by worsening foodborne and waterborne diseases. The IPCC has high confidence that climate change is also increasing the incidence of vector-borne diseases, and vectors are just living organisms like mosquitoes that carry and transmit an infectious pathogen to another living organism, which then spreads disease. The synthesis report also mentions that climate change will significantly increase mental health challenges like anxiety and stress caused by things like extreme heat and the displacement of people from weather disasters. Yes, so Galagio explained to me that in Mauritania, major diseases that are causing death, particularly the ones that are killing children, are all sensitive to climate change. So things like malaria, diarrhoea and respiratory infections. And to make the link between illness and climate change clear, I want to tell you about a really fascinating project that Galagio led. And it came about after one particular year when there were floods in all 13 countries in West Africa. And he noticed the way that politicians were visiting some of the smaller cities that had been affected. The presidents are going now to visit those places where there was flooding events. Maybe at the heart of the event they go, and then one week later, no one is no more going to see what's going on there. He was particularly interested in what effects the flood had in those smaller cities after the political roadshow moved on. Cities that are less than 50,000, they are numerous in Africa. And they are at a stage where they are in a mix-up of still a kind of rural setup. You have some areas in the city where you are like in a village. Then you have... A part of the city with privileged people and an area with these underprivileged people. 
So we said we'll do our projects in four secondary cities to see how the flooding event will be hitting people, how this could be holding risks for diseases in the city, and what are the vulnerabilities in that place. One of the cities they looked at was a place called Kaidi in Mauritania, about three hours northwest of the town that Galagio grew up in. We're listening to sounds from Kaidi recorded just the other day that Galagio sent me. If, if I was walking down the main street in Kaidi, what, what would I see? What, what's the town like? Yes. So if you come to Kaidi, you have a river. It's a, 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 a river. That's the Senegal River, which is the border of Senegal and Mauritania. The bench of the river is, is to be a place of a lot of activities by women. They come there to wash dishes, to wash clothes, and children come to swim. And the mothers or the sisters are asking them to, to do something. From the river, there is a lot of living sounds, <laughs> living, living sounds of happiness. And so Galadio and his team analysed climate records for Kaidi going back to 1919. We can see on the time series the changes on the rainfall and we see a lot of variability. And we said also that the heavy rainfall is accumulating in a shorter time period. So a few days with a lot of rain and then no rain for some time. Over time, then, rainfall is becoming more intense. That's the, that's the sort of climate trend. More intense. So the overall total of water that is falling on the rainy season maybe is not more than before, even less than before. But when in the past it was more regular, it's sometimes not raining now, then suddenly heavy rains in a few days, and then no rain again. So this variability is creating a lot of problems. This is exactly the trend we talked about in episode four on the water cycle. The wet gets wetter and the dry gets drier. Yeah, I noticed that too. When he said this, I was like, bing, wet gets wetter. Exactly. And so to understand the impact of that wet gets wetter situation in KED, they did some very cool research, I think. So KED has a public water system, but it's unreliable. So lots of people have kept their own wells. There are 100 wells in the town. So Galagio and his researchers mapped the location of those wells and then they did interviews. We asked the stakeholders, where are the regions or the areas that are used to be flooded? So it's a negotiation. Yes, this street. No, 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 you can this one. No. And then the stakeholders draw for us a map and we can find three zones. Their map showed flooding scenarios of high, medium and low vulnerability And it turned out that the vast majority of wells were located in the poorer, more vulnerable parts of town. Kaidi doesn't have a sewerage system. And the town's mostly flat, but the wealthier parts are higher above the river. Yeah, the wealthier parts of town had very few wells and no issue with flooding. If flooding comes, it flushed in wells all the ways that are surrounding the wells. And then it could be contaminated. So if people drink that water, they are exposed to drinking polluted water. So diarrheal diseases increase during the first part of the rainy season. And if the flooding is getting worse, there's more contamination, leading to more waterborne diseases. And the other risk is when water stagnates because there's bad drainage. And when it stagnates, you can get breeding conditions for mosquitoes. And this could lead to malaria. And now in cities, it can lead to dengue. So this is how the links between flooding and disease come on board. So the upshot of this mapping was that Galadio could 
recommend some preventative measures. So before the rainy season, there should be a cleanup program for animal and human wastes. And there could be a focus on ensuring that there are toilets and no open defecation in those areas, the vulnerable areas. And it would be best to protect wells by building up their walls higher off the ground and maybe to chlorinate them at that time. And the other thing is to improve drainage system so water flushes out as quick as it comes in. And so if you can put a package of prevention measures so that rain when it comes, it will not create problems. After all your work on the series of IPCC reports, what do you hope people, whether they're policymakers or the public, will take away from this work about climate change and health? I know that things are moving. I think in many policies, the main obstacle to see a policy being in place is financial resources. So far, the health sector was not able to mobilize enough money for health adaptation. So we can say over the last 10 years, some statistics on the last 10 years funded projects, it's less than 1% that went to health adaptation projects. So the question is, who to blame? Galadio's answer to this question actually took me by surprise. One of our main research currently is that it's a health sector that is not doing what has to be done. He said that in Mauritania, there are currently 18 climate change projects with different funding sources, but none of them are about health. Understand that climate change is not the problem of only environmental departments in the countries. Climate change is a matter of every sector. And in fact, he sees climate change as an opportunity. So there are already these needs of development, like... KED, as we've heard, has an unreliable public water supply and households are lacking sanitary toilet systems. And then there's this bad drainage in some parts of the town. So they need this stuff anyway. And he's like, getting that money depends on your urgency. When there's a disaster, often we do find the means to pay for the response to that disaster. People say, yeah, but I don't have the means. When you have emergency, we find means. Where were those means that suddenly you find when you have a disaster coming up in Kaidi? Why don't you put the climate change disaster in your planning? Because there are opportunities, windows of opportunities of getting funds that will increase your investment in infrastructure, that will increase your, your, your capacities of your public health programs. I find it interesting that your frustration is with the sort of local level, like maybe bureaucrats, I'm not sure. Is that where you see the, the kind of blockage in improvements? Because I would have thought from the outside, maybe it was that, that there was a lack of funding or maybe that the rich countries aren't devoting enough to responding adequately. But the things that you're talking about are more like local level program designers. Exactly. There are some countries, maybe they are, they are far ahead of us. They have introduced many proposals already. Mid-level countries like, I don't know, Brazil or Nigeria or South Africa. Maybe they have a lot of projects that they have put in, in the table and they don't get the fund that proposals were requiring. But in many countries, it's not the case. So they are just not even at the basic stage of having an idea of where are the vulnerabilities, where are the most vulnerable regions and people, the places where you have most impact. Because it's not one solution fitting for every country. So if you show a better understanding of your context, of your uh, risks, 
then you can put on the table concrete proposals. This is what many countries have not done yet. At COP26, which was held in Glasgow in 2021, the World Health Organization announced a program to help countries develop these kinds of proposals that Galadio is talking about on climate change and health. And now there are over 60 countries that have signed up, including Mauritania. And under that framework, Mauritania recently developed a roadmap with the next step being a vulnerability assessment and a national adaptation plan. That's a lot of reports to write, isn't it? But I guess that's how these things actually happen. So my feeling is that the change is coming. So I'm confident, I'm optimistic that things are moving in a good direction. I find it so interesting to have heard that really specific perspective from Galagio. And I do find it kind of confronting to realise that there are lots of places that don't have these kinds of basic assessments about their problems in order to be able to get the funds that they need and and also to think about that kind of long time horizon before that that will all play out. But it is positive to hear that he feels like this kind of change is on the way. Yeah, that's right. And I think that despite his comments on some of the obstacles to health-related projects in a lot of countries, there's also a lack of overall funding for development projects. So a key takeaway of the IPCC's synthesis report is that scaling up climate finance is really crucial, especially in developing countries where financial resources are limited. Fear and Wonder is proudly brought to you by the Climate Council. My name is Professor Leslie Hughes, and I'm a former IPCC author and one of the founding councillors of the Climate Council. Back in 2013, thousands of Australians chipped in to create a new independent and community-funded organisation after the Abbott government abolished the Climate Commission. Since then, we've played the important role of being Australia's own independent, evidence-based organisation on climate science, impacts and solutions. Our vision is that by 2025, Australia's emissions are on a steep downward trajectory with projects and policies in place to see us cut emissions 75% by 2030 and achieve net zero by 2035. This is not an easy task, but we believe it can be done. It requires a major shift in action and attitude from all levels of government, industry, business, and the community. To find out more about how you can catalyze action on climate and support our campaigns, please visit climatecouncil.org.au slash the conversation. So, Joelle, when we last heard from Ada, she was at Sharm el-Sheikh in Egypt at that meeting of world governments on climate change, and she was talking about whether or not the wealthy countries would agree to fund loss and damage, so payments to the countries that suffer the effects of climate change. And right at the end of those negotiations, which was actually day 15 of COP27, countries finally agreed to establish a loss and damage fund. And although they still need to agree on exactly what that means in practice, like which countries fund it and who receives money from it, at least it was progress. Yeah, Ada did send me some messages afterwards saying that she was really pleased there was an agreement. But she did note that basically everything still needs to be worked out for it to actually start functioning. But another issue is related to the data needed to attribute extreme events to climate change, especially in Africa and some parts in Latin America and Asia where there is low data coverage and also difficulty in accessing existing data. So this is the kind of 
attribution study to climate change that we learned about in episode three, and Ada's anticipating that they'll need those kinds of studies to prove loss and damage. But will they actually be able to do them when there isn't strong enough data to rely on? Actually, when Ada was the director of the Senegal Met Office, she oversaw an attempt to rescue some of the country's climatological records. Yeah, this is actually quite a tricky scientific point. So attribution studies in many parts of Africa are still really difficult because of the short length of the climate records in many areas. So this makes it really hard to definitively link a specific extreme event to human influences, especially if it's really localised, like a severe storm or a hail storm or something like that, uh, which is really difficult to capture in models as we talked about earlier in the series. And it's also really complicated to try and determine which economic impacts are directly caused by climate change or human-caused climate change and others that might just be caused by underlying factors like poor management or a lack of development. So it starts getting really complex really quickly. But what she's saying there really is, is a sticking point. Yeah, and I guess the other thing is just how stark it is that inequality compounds in this way. Africa's suffering more intense impacts already, and yet because of the long-standing difference in funding that's available for science in richer parts of the world and poorer parts of the Mm. world, then their chance to kind of get some reparations for that, those impacts, Mm. is diminished because of... The The lack of of capacity to do the work. It really, it's not a level playing field. What time is your flight tonight? Yes, around 2 a.m. Oh, so, Joelle, the next time I spoke to Ada, it was just recently, it was on the morning before she flew to Switzerland for the approval session for the synthesis report. It's a flight from Dakar to Lisbon, wait three hours, and then Lisbon to... We haven't talked about this in the series yet, but Ada's actually going somewhere really important for the IPCC process, which is called an approval session. It's something that is perhaps a little bit controversial and probably quite misunderstood, so it's worth talking about. So every working group of the IPCC produces essentially three versions of its report. There's the full report with all of its chapters, a shorter one that's called the technical summary, and then an even shorter one which is called the summary for policymakers. And the wording of this short one for policymakers needs to be agreed on by all governments involved in the IPCC process during these approval sessions that often turn out to be marathon sessions that go into the night and well beyond their allocated time. Yeah, it seemed totally crazy to me when I first heard about this, but they they go through the document line by line, like all these governments, and argue over the wording. And those approval sessions, they always just give them a week, Monday to Friday. But the funny thing is that they advise us to bring, um, how do you say, to bring snacks in case uh, if you have oh. late night uh, <laughs> sessions. So it could take a long time. Yeah, it could take a long time. Thank you very much, dear chair. Your Excellency Minister. This is the opening ceremony of the meeting. It's the first approval session in person following the pandemic, and it is the last approval session for this sixth cycle. After the dignitaries have made their opening remarks, the delegates for the countries and their scientists get down to debating the wording. And it's the job of the IPCC scientists involved to justify the specific wording of a statement or respond to any suggested changes. 
And this process can go on and on and on. I actually didn't hear from Ada for a few days, but then she managed to find a moment to send me a message. Hi, Michael. I have just left the plenary room to go to the another room for a contact group to discuss the question raised and to try to find a solution and come back to the, to the plenary. We thought that at least the first three paragraphs would be straightforward, but that lead to a lot of discussions. And we see that the politics was already entering in. So these were paragraphs about global surface temperature increases, the total human-caused temperature increase, and historical cumulative emissions, so what's added up over time. Countries were arguing about things like replacing the word and with followed by, and also about how the report chose to emphasise what was emitted when, like whether to focus on particular spans of years more than other spans of years. So if you take a, a more recent period, you might actually take in developing nations that have taken off, but they also want to say, well, hang on a sec, guys, before 1990 is pretty much you. It's interesting because it's like both of those things are true factually. Yes. But you've got a short report. You can't say everything. What do you What do you choose to highlight? And that's a matter of, I guess, in a way, political power. Or, or- and that has a really big influence on what actually happens with the policy response because, you know, if people are saying we all have to do our fair share, well, what is fair and what is your share? Another subsection I am involved in will pass soon. I don't know when, actually. So it's difficult for me to, to be outside. I just get out from the, the, the plenary to, to send this message. By Tuesday night, they'd already added night sessions from 7.30 to 10pm. And then on the Thursday onwards, they added in an extra session from 11pm to 2am. I bit my tongue, Joelle, and I I left her in peace until Sunday, and then I couldn't help it. I asked her what was happening. She sent me a reply much later while she was on the train to Paris. Uh, Yes, approval session went up to Sunday afternoon, so we have, uh, uh, we had 84 hours more than what is supposed in the schedule. It was very difficult, actually. Most of the authors spent even two nights without real sleep. Yeah, it was very difficult. As you can hear in Ada's voice there, it's obviously a really, really difficult process for all of those scientists who have worked so hard to be as precise as possible with the phrasing of the report. But because this is a United Nations process, everyone has to agree with the wording. So sometimes sentences can be altered to include more qualifiers. So it feels a bit watered down in places, but ultimately the process ends up with a document that everyone can agree on. And that's actually really important as the summary for policymakers actually guide the decisions that nations make collectively at these COP meetings or at that individual country level. But to be honest, you don't really need to dig too deeply into the full report itself to find the full findings in their original phrasing that were drafted by the scientists. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. We are uh, in Interlaken today. The IPCC has just finished its 58th session. I would like to welcome all of you to this hybrid... So, Jill, this is the Monday morning, so the next day after that marathon. And there were a couple of things from the press conference that stuck out to me. The first was the IPCC chair from South Korea, Professor Ho-Sung Lee. And he pretty much started out by thanking all of the scientists. All of you showed extraordinary dedication to producing and finalizing the synthesis report. You work 
countless hours driven only by your loyalty to the integrity of the science. The entire world owes you its deepest gratitude, and so do I. And then the other thing I wanted to play you, Joa, was the response from one of the section leads, Professor Chris Trissos from South Africa, about loss and damage when he was asked about it by a Portuguese newspaper. On, ...have stronger evidence than ever before of loss and damage from climate change and that negative impacts of climate change are occurring in all regions. He gave a really neat summary of the kinds of issues with inequality in climate action and that's something that matters deeply in Africa. Low-income groups have the largest gaps in adapting to climate change and that climate justice, social justice and other equitable approaches can help close these gaps in adapting to climate change as well as broaden and widen support across society for reducing greenhouse gas emissions and helping deliver the scaled-up and far-reaching climate action we need in this decade in order to limit global warming close to 1.5 and avoid the worst impacts from climate change. Lastly, the report has a high confidence that the greatest gains in well-being, especially in urban areas, can come from prioritising climate risk reduction for low-income and marginalised groups. Meanwhile, Ada was making her way home to Dhaka and doing a bunch of interviews. I've got a clip here from one she did with a French radio station, RFI. ...qui va permettre d'informer les gouvernements, les décideurs, pour une action climatique plus ambitieuse. She said she thinks they have a solid report and she felt like they accomplished something to be proud of. Et d'espoir aussi. Et beaucoup de fatigue, sans doute. Oui, beaucoup de fatigue, sans doute, parce que Despite la plupart fatigue. des auteurs sont restés deux jours vraiment sans dormir, je peux dire, ou dormir une heure par-ci, par-là. Mais nous savons que nous avons accompli ce que nous avions à faire. So, for me, in today's episode, the kind of thing that comes through is the issues of inequality and injustice and the need to move towards justice and equality in the way that we address climate change. Yeah, this is such an opportunity to actually try and address some of the inequalities we have entrenched in our societies that are a result of colonialism and exploitation of developing countries, just historically, and allow countries to develop and to prosper but prosper in a way that's climate resilient, that's adapted to climate change, but also trying to avoid the worst aspects because some things are just hard adaptation limits. You cannot adapt to certain things. I'm also pleased to end this series on this note, thinking about climate change and human health and justice and equality. But we've done a whole lot in the rest of the episodes, haven't we? Oh, it's mind-boggling to think of the ground we've covered, but also... For me as a scientist, it's really nice to see some of the highlights of some of the emerging aspects of science shared with listeners because I hope that they can see that there's just so much ahead of us and get on board. Some people have heard that I'm working on a series about climate change and they, they're like, oh, that must be really depressing. <laughs> yep. I mean, you must get this all the time. Anyway, yep. but I actually say to them, no, not at all. It's been so interesting and also inspiring to speak to all these scientists from around the world and 
you know, hear about the depth of knowledge that people have and their passion and dedication for working on it. It's been such a journey. You know, we heard from Kim all the way back in episode one, diving the coral reefs and talking about those really major changes. We travelled to Iceland, we've been to Jamaica, to Colombia, to India, to Senegal, to Mauritania, and I probably left off a few as well. And, and truly, it has been a real journey into feeling... I guess a real sense of pride in the scientific community and the work that people do to really try and help inform the public about this really profound moment that we're facing in terms of trying to stabilise the Earth's climate and also just realising that there's just so much that we can do to minimise the worst aspects of climate change and that those solutions already exist. And so, Joelle, we started working on this series. I roped you in because I had this realization that I didn't really understand how we know what we know about climate change. And as I said, right at the start of the series, it was because I happened to be passing by your town the day after my in-laws place burned down in Australia's horrifying black summer bushfires. And so now it's more than three years later and I have some good news, which is that they finally rebuilt their house. It's, it's nearly finished and we actually visited them really recently. And that sound that we're listening to is my partner's dad, Jack, walking through the bush from his new house down to the beach. And as you know, I've got a one-year-old daughter and when we visited, it was the first time that she'd been there and seen that beautiful beach and it was really special. We did notice that there were still far fewer birds there than there used to be before the fire came through. But anyway, the reason that I wanted to tell you this story is that In these three years, Jack has done an enormous amount of community work advocating for better policies on climate change. He's part of a group called Bushfire Survivors for Climate Action and also the local community climate group where he lives. And he's been campaigning tirelessly in state and local and federal elections. And for me, it's hugely inspiring to see the way that he's chosen to respond to what happened to him and to respond to this climate crisis. Absolutely. I think it is really inspiring to realise that local communities, a lot of people really care about this. They really do care about the changes they're seeing in the natural world and in our communities. And I think it it takes people like Jack and other people to stand up and say, we want to do things differently. And I guess what the IPCC is basically saying is that what happens next is up to all of us. So it really does mean taking a stand wherever it is that you find yourself in the world and doing what it is that you can do to really show up in this moment and make a difference. I feel that. I feel that's how the world is going to change. Fear and Wonder is produced by me, Michael Green, and co-hosted by Dr Joelle Gerges from the Australian National University with sound engineering and design and extra wisdom from John Chia. Script editing by Nicole Kirby. Thanks to the show's executive producer, Ben Clark, and The Conversation's editor, Misha Ketchell. Fear and Wonder is sponsored by the Climate Council. We recorded on Wurundjeri land at the State Library of Victoria. Joelle wrote about her experience as an IPCC author in her new book, which is called Humanity's Moment, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope. So this was our final episode, but you can help to get the word out about Fear and Wonder by rating it and reviewing it and sharing it with anyone you think would enjoy the series. Thanks very much for listening. 